Hello listeners and welcome to the third season of Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Have you ever wondered why addiction works in a cycle? Well, it turns out the answer could be all in your head. This week's podcast guest, Professor Judith Grizel, took her first drink of alcohol at 13 and soon began using other addictive drugs. In less than a decade, her life completely transformed, ending up in a drug treatment center. After learning about the disease model of addiction and getting clean and sober, she went on to earn a PhD in behavioral neuroscience. Now a professor at Bucknell University, Judith's expertise lie in pharmacology, genetics, and understanding the neural liability for substance use disorders. Listen in as Judy delves into her personal experience with drug addiction and how it led to a career in neuroscience. She will also inform us on how drugs co-opt the brain circuits critical for normal development. Hello, everybody, and thanks for tuning in to another podcast. Today gives me great pleasure to introduce Professor Judith Grizel. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for joining me. Thanks. I'm happy to be here, Sam. So, Judy, do you just want to give us a bit of background about yourself? I know you've had over 20 years' experience in what you're currently doing, but before we get into that, how did it all start for you? Well, I am a researcher studying addiction because I began my research on addiction, I guess, on the streets, so to speak. I started drinking when I was almost 13 and took every drug I could get my hands on for about a decade. And as a result of that, I ended up in a treatment center kind of facing the brutal choice of abstinence and recovery or death. And so I started a long process of trying to understand what was wrong or different about my brain that made me self-destruct when I took addictive substances. Curiosity is remarkable. And obviously you were growing up at such a young age and getting involved in those substances at 12 or 13 or whatever, when you started the journey on that. Was it, were you a product of the environment? Was it, do you think it's genetic? Tell us, how did you come about to get into it? Is it people you're hanging around? Oh my gosh, what a great question. That could be a lecture in itself. (laughs) That is what I spend my life trying to understand. What is it? What are the factors that predispose somebody and especially what's different about the brain? And we know half of the risk in general is heritable. So coming from genes or epigenetic influences. And I probably had a few of those. I have probably about the average number of alcoholics in my family and my extended family. But because it's so common, it's not as if there was one smoking gun problem in those people who have that 
genetic variant are definitely problem users and those who don't are not. So I think probably even a bigger factor for me was this early exposure. Turns out that most people who have a substance use disorder begin using before they're adults, usually well before. And that is a tremendous risk factor, just like kids learn everything more quickly. Their brain changes in response to drugs in more profound ways than an adult brain would. And so that's a big risk factor. There's probably lots of other things too, including stress. And as you mentioned, accessibility, but part of that is just so pervasive that almost everybody has access. So maybe random chance with particular people in my life during middle school or something. Okay. Because where did you grow up in America? Whereabouts? I grew up not in New Jersey, which is near New York. So very urban, but upper middle class, quiet community. Most people weren't as outrageous as I was. But one thing we definitely know about addiction is that it cuts across every demographic, across economic and race and gender and age. And it could be on a ranch in Wyoming, or you could be in Miami, Florida, or you could be in Adelaide, Australia, and you would probably have uh, equal risk. It's about one in five in general who struggle with substances. Is that right? And most of those is before you're an adult? Most of those begin before you're an adult. The, The consequences don't really show up for many people until they're older. But for instance, if you begin drinking before you're 18, as I did, then you have about a one in four chance of developing a substance use disorder. And for every year earlier than 18, it grows. But if you wait till you're 21, you have about a one in 25. So there's this very vulnerable period during adolescence, which is also, as you kind of mentioned, when people are most curious, most likely to take risks and interested in new things. So it is a kind of a sweet spot for developing a problem. Does one lead into the other? Like, do you think obviously the addiction to alcohol, for instance, will then make you more likely to then experiment with other drugs? Absolutely. Is there a comorbidity with that? They they definitely go together. And the reasons for that are the kind of things we've been talking about. So the genetic risk is largely shared, not completely. There are specific variants that increase or decrease your risk for one drug, but not another. But the vast majority of genetic risk is shared. So it looks like personality traits like high novelty seeking, risk taking, low tendency to worry about getting in trouble. Those are all traits. And and also, by the way, anxiety and depression, which are also heritable, predict drug use. We know that people start medicating pretty early and they will self-medicate with any, a range of drugs. And some of them may work better than others. So for anxious people, they might like downers or alcohol for People who have problems with attention, we know that they're at higher risk for stimulant use. Mm -hmm. People who are in pain in one form or another, maybe sitting ducks for opioid epidemic. 
Yeah, so I think it's it's all of those things. What was your experience like going through drug treatment center? And it could have changed since then, but tell us compared to what your just tell us what your experience was like at that point. Was it something that you did pretty easily or you found it very very challenging? Oh, it was terrible. It's even terrible. It's been almost 35 years and I can still really connect with how desolate I felt. I guess the the worst part about it was suddenly being without substances. And that is a rude awakening. It was terribly rude and challenging because I had been used to, as most people are, anytime things got slightly rough, I would pick up. So the idea of facing the hard parts of my life and my choices was completely anathema. So that was terrible. I had just turned 23, but they sent me to the children's section because I was still very much a child. I really hadn't matured as most people in their early 20s might have. I was kind of stopped and I had to look at and deal with guilt and shame and loss and regret and sadness and anger, all these things that I hadn't before. So it was only 28 days. And I don't remember much of the details, but it sits with me like a massive iceberg of pain. And then I went to a halfway house for three months. And that's really probably where I started to learn how to kind of put one foot in front of the other. But it's been a long journey. It's gotten much better since then. Cold turkey. Just went in cold. and Cold turkey. Yeah, I don't even think we got caffeinated coffee. And in those days, you were allowed to smoke cigarettes. So I think I probably chain smoked. But I don't remember. But I think many treatment centers now dissuade even that. It turns out that any addictive substance sort of greases the rails for every other one. So most experts agree that it's going to be miserable. We want to mitigate any life-threatening withdrawal symptoms, which can happen from alcohol or a few drugs, but most are not life-threatening. And otherwise, just let you ride it out. And I think in retrospect, that was good for me because if I could have weaned myself down little by little, I, I might still be doing that. Yeah. So you reckon that was a bit of a blessing, even though it was so hard at the time? It was... I'm sure it was for me, partly because such bleak news motivated me to find something else to do with my compulsive energy. And so I began to study neuroscience. And I I think if I had been half in the bag instead of fully in the bag, I, I might not have been so motivated. I might have been content with my old job making sandwiches at the bar. That's what you were doing? I was actually had a great job shucking clams and making sandwiches at a a raw bar. I don't know if you call it that, but it was right on the beach and we didn't have to wear shoes and the owner was a bit of an alcoholic himself. So I thought it was the perfect job, but I like my job today even better. So how did you go from the halfway house into enrolling in behavioral neuroscience. Like how did that, was it a a long period of time and, and how did it come about? It was really a scheme 
to prove my counselors at the treatment center and halfway house wrong, I had no interest in living clean and sober. I, even, I really felt like even when you're in the halfway be, house, right? Wow. I didn't want to, but I was scared a little bit. And they said, you have a disease that's going to kill you if you keep using. And there were a few things that made me believe they might be true. I think I always have been curious and fairly open-minded. So I, I was sort of like, Hmm, it looks like they mean it. And in fact, you know, I had had several run-ins with crazy people like me. So I, I figured I'll solve, I'll cure my disease. I'll just fix it. And then I'll be able to use with like a, without self-destructing. And for some reason, I think many people like me can relate to this. The idea of a lifetime abstinent is too much to bear. So for some reason, I told myself, what I think I can cure addiction in seven years. I'll, I'll do everything they say. I'll stay clean and sober for seven years. And then I'm going to make up my mind and we'll see how it goes. It took me a few more years to get my bachelor's. It was a seven-year project in total, coincidentally. And then I was in grad school for about that long doing behavioral neuroscience research, trying to understand what's different about the brains of people like me. And then I did a postdoc and I guess somewhere in there, seven years came and I get two things hit me. One was I had not cured it and neither had anybody else. And in fact, I was, I had more questions than ever. And secondly, my life was a trillion times better. So maybe I'd give it a little longer and see. Yeah. Well, it's what an incredible journey that, that you went on and, and to turn it around like that and, and actually get into the field. I mean, I guess it's the first time you know, during that seven years would have been the first time as an adult that you were sober and in control of what you were doing. And I mean, was that strange to get to know yourself again and to, I don't know what that would have been like. It was hard. For instance, this is probably sounds silly, Sam, but I completely missed the developmental period where girls are thinking or anybody's thinking about what to wear, how to fix their hair, how to do their makeup. I was homeless for part of that time. I, I really, everything I owned was navy blue, sort of matching my mood, which it wasn't much and in tatters. So I had no idea how to dress. I had, I was about 28. So this is a good five years later when I realized I don't even know what my taste is. I don't know what I like on the walls. Yeah. I had, I really had to discover that going on a date. Absolutely terrifying. How do you yeah. have a first kiss yeah. without being loaded or dance or go to a job interview? So all a lot of that yeah. was served by the same kind of bravery that helped me use to such an extent. I would think nothing of going to some inner city corner and trying to find something. And I, I kind of employed that same what the heck attitude and just figured I'll do the best I can. It was messy. It was yeah. definitely not a graceful process, I would say. 
Tell, tell me, Julian, and I don't know if you want to answer this, but tell me about the role of the family and support around you. Was that something that was hard for them to watch looking back on it? Was it, was it something that a lot of people talk about or forget sometimes about the people that are involved in the lives of those people that are suffering from the disease? Did they have a role here? And, and if so, was it a hard thing for them to go through? Yeah, there's so much that could be said about the role of loved ones, both from my own experience, but I think in general. And the first thing I guess I should say is that I don't think there's anything a family can do to ensure the safety of their loved ones. And my parents, especially my mother, really tried. My mother was kind of a, both of them are pretty controlling, but my mother's way was to really try to manage me. And I was unmanageable. And and I'm sort of still this way, but the more you try to tell me what to do, the less likely I am to do it. She has a story today that I was like one and a half and she would say, sleep tight. And I would say, I'm going to sleep loose. You know, I mean, I'm just that kind of person still. My father, on the other hand, we had a pretty good relationship until I guess it was just so hard for him to look at me that he decided in another feat of control to just pretend I didn't exist. During the last couple of years of my using, he would tell people he had two sons, my brothers, and he would simply ignore the fact that he had a daughter. I think we all loved each other, but there was so much pain. And I was alienated from myself. And it was sort of necessary for me to make them wrong in order to keep doing what I was doing. So you couldn't have reached my heart really with a, with a jackhammer. Yet a confluence of things happened for me, which is that I, things got bad as they usually do. And they got bad fast. I was doing cocaine and this was, this was a way to, to, go fast. I think alcohol takes longer, maybe even opiates sometimes. But anyway, I was using stimulants. I was getting in a lot of trouble. I was really hating myself. And my parents reached out and, you know, they had done so before, but maybe not quite in the same way. Anyhow, they they offered treatment. And I was so confused, as I've said, that this was in the mid-1980s. I thought treatment was going to be like a spa. Mm. I don't know what I thought, but I had no idea. So I thought that I deserve some treatment. (laughs) I've been through a tough time and damn right, send me off to the spa. So they, I mean, I was just, I can hardly even think about myself, but unrecognizable. So they took me on a plane, dropped me off in the middle of nowhere at a very good nonprofit treatment center. Mm -hmm. And when I saw the nurses' uniforms, I freaked out. But I, I was so far away from anything and just curious enough to see what what it would be like for 28 days. So I certainly owe my life to their willingness to stick with it. But our relationship wasn't like it was all roses after that. They shortly after that, they got divorced. I remember in the halfway house, actually, I said to my counselor one day, I'm the black sheep. 
I have a really perfect family. And she just burst out laughing. I now know that there's no, there's no perfect family and that we're all doing the best we can, but it's often not perfect. Yeah, it must be hard for carers or family in that instance to see their loved ones suffering and feel relatively unable to, to get in there and penetration or cut through. But um, like you said, you sort of needed to go through what you went through. No one would be able to get through to you anyway. So do you have any comments around that moving forward for people that are in Well, your- now I have three children. Two are in their 20s and one is 18. Wow. And I have even more gratitude and empathy for my parents than I did before. I think we all have little children, I guess, that we imagine are going to grow up to be whole. And it's a treacherous journey. And hopefully we all eventually get there, but I think it's tough. And in fact, I shouldn't even be so flip about it because many children are dying or continuing to suffer and their families are trying to cope with that. And I feel very fortunate. I do think that one thing that really may offer hope is that just as we were speaking, that the earlier you start using, the more prone you are to developing a substance use disorder, the earlier you can intervene, the more able I think people are to demonstrate resilience. And I, for one, was not really willing at the beginning, but I was afforded a good treatment center and opportunities to grow in other ways. And I think that happening before my brain was done developing was really helpful. So if you have kids, uh, and I, I have to tell myself this, let's not put our heads in the sand. Let's communicate. Let's talk. Let's not hope it works out. Let's uh, discuss the data. Yeah, my daughter says, I know these things are bad for me because you've been telling me this the whole time, but sometimes I don't care. So what do we do? We have to try to care for them and through them and take care of ourselves as well. Yeah, it's a it's definitely a challenge and you, and you don't realize till you get there yourself as a parent, you think, oh, wow. Like you said, empathy for your parents and understanding of what that must have been like for them. But also as you go through, uh, I mean, you care so much about them and you want them to have the best, but to some extent that wrestling with control and giving them some freedom is sort of a tough one, and, and I'm not yet to go through that, but we will be shortly, but not too far away. But I, I just think it's such a tough period. Of, Congratulations. You, you yeah, it is tough. It. it is. I think one thing uh, to add to that is that, and we kind of talked about this earlier, but I was like many 14 or 13 or 12-year-olds really dying to get to the edges of my little trimmed world and see what was beyond that. And there weren't many opportunities for that, except for drugs, which were right around. And I think it's important for parents and community members to recognize that this tendency in adolescence is natural. So it's really baked into their neurobiology and beneficial. In many cases, it helps them to individuate to become their own unique selves. And it also helps the rest of us because they 
push us. You know, they're not so conservative. They don't care if it might hurt or I just do hope that we can recognize that kids are going to be this way rather than try to put them into a small box. They're naturally not in the lines that we older folks might be comfortable in and help them discover ways of exploring themselves in the world that don't kill them. Yeah. Tell me what you think about, I mean, let's go to the science of this. So as you, as teenagers are growing up, as you're adolescent, What's going on in the brain that that wants that's telling them, hey, it's it's time we experiment. Let's get out and take a few risks. And why is it at that age that's so critical? Well, the brain is always kind of ready for the age appropriate experiences. So, for instance, it is so primed to learn language in somebody who's about one to two years old and even before, that if you're trying to teach a language after that, it's much harder. But during that time, it's almost automatic. And so the developmental goal of learning language as a baby is served by the brain that has kind of got a template already just waiting to hear the sounds and produce the sounds that are necessary. And it's the same with adolescence. So at that time, in our long evolutionary history, people were hitting puberty, as they still are, and they were basically starting their families. They were moving out, they were making their own way, and their brain is set to make its own way then. However, we now have this extended social adolescence that goes for probably at least another 10 years. And during that time, they're supposed to rein in those natural impulses and, you know, kind of fit in with the rest of us. And I think it's not really natural. It's also the case that there's this timing gap in brain development. So young brains are sort of young all around, but at about puberty, the motivational systems that lead us to explore and take risks and try new things on really grow fast. And they outpace outer part of the brain, the cortex that is responsible for, hey, wait a minute, that might be dangerous or slow down or don't you want to, you know, take it easy and shouldn't you be doing this? So that part is not really online fully. And yet the drive to get wild is wide open. And that gap is adolescence. And it's adolescence for the exact reason we said, who else is going to go swim to the next island or start a new whatever? And so, yeah, they're primed now. And the final thing is that during adolescence, the brain goes through its last big spurt in growth and arrangement. So once you're 30, you can certainly learn new things, but it's nowhere near as easy as it is when you're 15. So 15-year-olds are kind of a mass of teeming synapse arrangement. And it's that way so that they can say, hey, I think I like this sort of stuff, but I don't like that. I like her, but not him, or this is who I am. And so they try it all on with all this arrangement, and then they kind of prune away what's not necessary or what's not fitting for them. 
But when they have addictive drugs in their brains at this time, then it kind of, those overwhelm the system so that they become the most salient, the most relevant stimuli. And other factors are much less compelling. And therefore, they sometimes, like me, fail to develop into autonomous adult and also develop tolerance and dependence and craving for drugs that's associated with addiction. It's really interesting the way you've explained that. I'd just be curious to see, is there a difference between male and females as they're going through that period with what's going Um, on in the brain? Yeah, in that period, well, there's a lot of research in that area and I'm involved in some of that. There, yes and no. So the consequences probably are not different. The causes in large part not entirely, but look to be sex dependent. And this is, as I said, a really intriguing area of research. Most of the neuroscience on all biomedical disorders and including substance use have been done in males. And so we don't know as much about females, but when we look, as people are starting to do now, we see that the genetics and the neurochemistry and the outcomes are mediated differently. So I would say yes and no. For a 14-year-old, 14 trumps your sex. So for male or female. But later on, I think those effects start to show up more. Is there a solution or a solution is not the right word, but when they go through these natural impulses, how do either you as a parent or carer, guardian, how do you point them towards the things that are safer than things are, that are probably not as safe. Is there any tips on that when they're naturally in that period? How do you support them whilst trying to steer them in the right direction? So some kids are more likely to take these risks than others. My husband and I were mountain biking with our daughter. I think she was 17 at the time. And the, it was on a really steep, rocky trail that seemed completely insane to both of us. So we were kind of gripping and breaking and and she was flying down the mountain and my husband was saying stop stop and i said let's let her go because a broken collarbone is not that bad she has a helmet on in fact she did wipe out but i think that uh you know a few scrapes and bruises are part of growing up and there's some peril in trying to keep somebody safe first of all it's impossible and secondly they might be attracted to other things. My parents were very tight. They tried to, I was the oldest, as I said, they got a little more relaxed for my brothers, but you know, there was so many rules and regulations. And so drugs were really appealing to me because I could break all those at once. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tell us about the, I mean, as we go into the next stage of after adolescence, what's going on that makes, obviously you're less likely to once you hit that 20, 21, 22 period, you find that people are less likely to have that as addictive or as, as long of a period to be addicted to something. Is it because that period of risk is now past and now you're in a different phase of your life and you, as far as your brain works? So the more analytical cortical areas catch up okay. and they can help with some wisdom, but also in general, the plasticity or the 
malleability of the brain is decreasing a lot. So between about 21 and 25, depending on for women a little quicker than for men, and there's individual variation, the brain is basically getting to its mature state. And once it's mature, you're not completely immune from developing an addiction, but you're highly, highly, highly protected. It's just like it would be much harder for any of us to learn Arabic at 26 as it would at 14. And the same with addiction. It's a form of the brain learning to adapt, and it does so very readily in kids and less readily in adults. And so I think both of those things. And that's why if you develop a problem early, but you can catch it early and maybe start changing early, there's plenty of, there may be lots of time to recover too. Is there a certain degree that this disease happens to people, like biologically or genetically? Is there a factor in there that makes people more susceptible because of the makeup than other people at this? Absolutely. Some people are at much higher risk than others. So half of the risk we have is stuff we inherit. And those are not single genes, but lots of genetic factors and maybe epigenetic factors too. So not everybody is equally at risk, but anybody could develop a problem. So the head of the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse in the US, George Kube, has said, There's two ways to develop a problem with alcohol. You could either be born alcoholic or you could drink a lot. And so if you use enough drugs, whoever you are, whatever your age, whatever your genetic background, your brain will adapt in a way that makes you dependent on those drugs and lead to addiction. So you can, for some people, it doesn't take so much using because maybe they start early or they have particular risk factors that are biological or cultural or social, but eventually regular use leads to problems. Yeah. You mentioned social and cultural influences. To what extent is this also a factor in it? A huge extent. One of the biggest social factors is adverse childhood experiences. So having parents who are mentally ill, depressed, or anxious, or have a substance use disorder, or who are violent or in prison, having economic stress, these kinds of early stressors, they're they're not good for any of us, but they're particularly difficult for kids who then when they pick up a addictive drug, find it especially rewarding, not only because they're trying something new, as we've spoken about, but because they're escaping the misery that they're already in. And so adverse childhood experiences are probably the single biggest Mm -hmm. social factor. And the culture around the world is kind of a pro-escape culture. Even if you're not dependent on weed or heroin or alcohol, We are dependent on our technology or on our media feeds. I think that we don't have a lot of practice dealing with the kind of discomfort that I had to face in my treatment center for the first time. You know, I had avoided so much for so long that it all came at once. But 
in general, I think practicing and modeling ways of coping that don't involve escape would be more productive and less risky. Mm. Does binge drinking, let's look at the impact on that because do you feel that the actual number of perhaps the alcoholics is much higher than those that actually seek help, obviously, but do you think it's because the definition around whether it's casual or consistent binge drinking, people are unaware that they may be addicted to it if they're binge drinking, whether it's just on the weekends or to what extent is that contributing to part of the disease? You think that they're, they're just unaware, they're unconscious. Well, you're exactly right that binge drinking is a tremendous risk factor for alcoholism. And it's really just drinking to intoxication, getting to the legal limit. So we didn't call it binge drinking when I was young, but I still sometimes think, what's the point if you're not drinking to intoxication? So for me, a drink is simply a vehicle to get the alcohol to my brain. But so I think binge drinking is very common, but it's grown. It's grown in the, during the pandemic. Yeah. It's growing, especially in women who really need maybe four drinks within a couple hours to reach a blood alcohol concentration that's sufficient to make them legally intoxicated. And that is a big risk factor because the brain, well, first of all, alcohol is a neurotoxin. So it's, it's really dangerous for the brain, but the brain tries to adapt to that to counteract the effects of alcohol. And in doing that, it creates tolerance to alcohol so that now you can drink more and makes you feel not quite right when you're finished drinking. So in a short term, it could be a hangover, but long-term regular use of alcohol leads to anxiety, is associated with depression and loneliness. And so those things exacerbate or increase the tendency to want to drink, to escape. And then, so you're in this craving mode and that is alcohol dependence. No one, even though no alcohol is good for you, if you're having a glass of wine over a three-hour meal or something, that is not going to produce the kinds of changes that getting drunk will. And more and more people are drinking to get drunk. I work on a college campus and the kids do, I'm sure they do there too, but they drink before they go out to drink just to start early and they ensure that they're out of it. Here's a, here's an interesting thing I read recently, passing out one time from alcohol, just once in your life, kind of aside from how much you drink or don't drink, doubles your risk of dementia. Is that right? Later on. I know, isn't that sobering? So, so this is another good reason not to, to binge drink because if you're not intoxicated, you're not going to pass out. That's really alarming, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Because you'd have to sort of think that most people at some point in their life have experienced su- such an event. That's, uh, and we're only just getting to the start of this research too, aren't we, as we're seeing all this unfold? Yeah, we have a lot of great data these days all about the particular risks and liabilities. And so I'm enthused because I feel like the more information people get, especially young people, the better the choices they can make. And some 
drugs are more harmful than others and some have like we just talked about nobody wants to be demented although i have to remember that when you're 18 or 19 you probably don't think you're going to live past 30 or 40 anyway so what difference would it make but if you do you probably don't want to be demented no no but it's hard in that point in time isn't it to yes. show them that side because they're like no it won't happen to me no way not me mm-hmm. so or just on that then on the I mean, drugs these days, they're, they're becoming more accessible. The range and variety is increasing, seems to keep, keep coming with all the different variants, and the costs seem to come down in some, in, in some drugs. Uh, and the age that people are looking to do this seems to get younger. Tell us about what's the hope for, for drugs these days, and, and I mean, the impact of, on young people is obviously something that's really scary, but tell us about I mean, is this a big problem that we're heading into and is it getting worse? It is getting worse and it's been getting worse for a while. So despite knowing all we know, it's not getting better. It's getting worse. I do think we do are beginning to understand, though, that punishing or threatening, even saying you're doubling your risk of dementia is probably not a good way to motivate people for change. I think that laws and incarceration, and I was grounded half my adolescence, and I used to say I made up for it in the other half, you know. I think those those strategies don't work. So we are learning that positive incentives can work. So for instance, if kids are needing to explore and to have adventures, what would it be like to send them to a new country for a few months to really, I mean, that would activate their brain in just an exciting way that perhaps if we could prevent them from finding the drugs in that new country, that would would satisfy some of that urge. And it's the case that people are generally more motivated by rewards than punishments. And Drugs do seem like a short-term reward. The message of sort of the distilled message of my research is that they, they're rewarding at first, but in the long run, they get less and less pleasurable. And then you're only using to really feel normal or to not feel bad. And so if anybody thinks about that for just a moment, if you're smoking nicotine just so you don't have to deal with the withdrawal from nicotine or you're using opiates just because it's hell when you're not that's really a dead end Mm -hmm. and so i don't know what it what kind of things making music or rock climbing or something (laughs) else yeah is there a, a way that we can reverse the impact of alcoholism, or let's say you have blacked out in your life, like it increases your risk of dementia. Do we have the opportunity, whether it's biological or doing other things that can actually reverse the impact that this has on your body? Sure, in a way. So those studies and most science are using huge populations. So they can't look at an individual and say, oh, you've blacked out three times. You've got this much risk. What they can do is they can take thousands and hundreds of thousands of people and see differences 
in the groups that may be small but significant. So what we know helps with dementia is education and good sleep, highly important, healthy diet. Don't take neurotoxins like alcohol or MDMA or methamphetamine and uh, probably aerobic exercise. All these things that are kind of the long-term way out, not the short fix. So even people that have used before and they've come out and stained, obviously, for a certain period, if they're doing all these things, there is a chance that they can reverse the the impact of that. Absolutely. And I I don't even know if it's reverse as much as mitigate or counteract it. So there are lots of things we can do to benefit our brain's health and our body's health as well. But yeah, at the top of the list are sleep and exercise, I would say. Yeah. And that makes sense. You mentioned you're describing how drugs co-opt brain circuits that are critical to normal development. What does that mean? Well, we have pathways in the brain that are necessary for becoming our fullest selves. And those, some of the, one of those, I should say, is exploited by every single addictive drug. In fact, we know a drug is addictive because it activates this mesolimbic dopamine pathway, which is kind of right in the center of the brain. And it's responsible for the kind of drives that we were just talking about in adolescents that are especially high in people who are prone to addiction. Those are drives for curiosity, interest, risk, novelty. What's, what is it? And the kind of drive that makes you want to turn over a rock in the creek, that drive helps us because it helps us explore the world. And it's responsible, really, you could say, for most of the progress that humans have made, most of the art, most of the music, most of the entrepreneurial innovation. But drugs kind of jump onto that system and just a little chemical substance now makes it feel like you're really exploring, like you're really creating, like you're really out on the edge of this stratosphere, which is baloney, right? You could be sitting on your couch smoking bongs or something. It's not actually that way, but you feel like it's that way. And since you can't find other ways of doing that, it's terrific. So this is why people consume more and more drugs because it's a substitute for meaning. And if we find meaning the old fashioned way, it's tedious. It involves lots of pain. It's uh, sometimes embarrassing. You make a mistake, but if you find it with a bag of something or other, then you can just have your own little private party of aren't I great and isn't it all great it's really interesting isn't it and you talk about getting into that state and it's almost a false state that you're in to escape reality but I know when when I went about a year of not drinking and and almost 10 years I guess uh, at the moment but I know that you wonder the secondary consequences of okay well if you drink this much never tried drugs but if you drank this much to a certain point then felt a certain way. Why is it when you felt a certain way that you could dance or you could make funny jokes that you can't feel like you can do without the use of that? And I was similar in that respect where I just drank pretty much to get 
to get drunk because it was a state of being that I was chasing. And it's not until you start to question the consequence of what the action is that you're doing creates you into a state of being and you start questioning, well, hang on, why, why can't I do that in just a normal sober state? And you start thinking, oh, people know and they'll, you know, they're just, and so all of a sudden you start worrying about what other people think. But when you relax and you release that and you don't care and you just go out there and say, well, I wonder if I can go out to a nightclub sober and just and dance and, and just see how you go. And it's not until you give it a go that you think, oh, no one really cared. No one even probably knew. No one, you know, it's, it's all internalizing it. And so I feel like it's not until you can question the reason that you need to be in that state which leads you to do the things that you start thinking, well, why can't I crack jokes or tell great stories you know, in a sober state? And so that's what I found was really profound in the thinking that I was going through when I went through that period. Yeah, you bring up a lot of good points. I think adolescents are also really insecure Yeah. because literally they are insecure. They don't really fit with their family anymore and they don't know where they fit. And this is tough. It's a, it is the most stressful period of life. It's not when you're dying. It's not when you're having your own babies, it's adolescence. And so what happens with drugs is especially, let's say alcohol, it shuts off the kind of inner critic that's saying, oh, you look stupid or you sound stupid. So it's just a delight to relax. I mean, I can remember the feeling of my shoulders would just come down and I'm okay. I don't have to be perfect. So that is so also especially compelling for an adolescent. But as you mentioned, it's kind of a false development because it doesn't last. And if anything, you know, then you have the next day. Oh yeah. my gosh. And if you, if, if I didn't dance sober the first day, it doesn't get any easier the fifth day. I kind of have to learn it. So I remember the first. I was at a wedding. It was the first chance to dance when I was sober. I felt literally as if I was 13 feet tall with no skin. I mean, there was, there was no possibility I could go to the dance floor and dance. I was sober maybe five months. And yeah. that's what my experience was. Instead, I spent my time in the parking lot smoking cigarettes because I was so uncomfortable. Yeah. But today I'm a huge live music fan because COVID's lifted. I've been out. I went to a festival. I'm in the front. And also I happen to notice that even though I'm old now and I don't have any pharmacological enhancements, <laughs> I'm a, of the long-standing dancing people. So Good yeah, man. no, I, uh, I think it takes practice, yeah. but it's more authentic in the long run, and it's certainly not perfect, but I remember it. It's about 35 years now for you. Almost. People ask what it's like, and, and how do you communicate to them what it's like to, to be sober? I mean, you originally set out to do it for seven years as an experiment, but um, mm -hmm. obviously you've chosen the path of sobriety. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's... In some ways, a really hard question. It is, it's overwhelming. It's really rich. Some of it is brilliant and beautiful and so meaningful. And some of it is brutal and terrible and <laughs> torturous. And sometimes I have all that within a day. 
So it's really rich. It's definitely much more full, sort of standing toe to toe with what is. And that is kind of a rare happening. I don't know. I mean, I'm not patting myself on the back so much as just I don't have an option. I sometimes think to myself, I think I've said this before, but I tell my husband, you know, I had a really rough day. Why don't you have a drink? <laughs> he doesn't, he's not an alcoholic. And he looks at me like, that's not a good time to, <laughs> but I have not had that luxury. And because of that, my, my life and my, my being, I guess, is much bigger than it was way bigger than when I was using all those drugs. You know, I felt like I was expanding myself. But nothing like reality expands. Judy, what does what does the future hold for you? What's what are you coming up? What um, what exciting projects? Yeah, I don't know. I'm working on a couple of big projects. Maybe I'm very interested in in explaining more about this neurodevelopmental high risk period, and I think of it as um, adolescents being primed for addiction. And I want to talk not about only their brain. I want to explain all that, but I also want to talk about the rest of us and what we can do to respond more appropriately to that priming and to benefit from it, frankly, because we're losing a lot of human capital and industry and excitement by all these uh, people living in their basements with their bottles or their bags or their pills. And then the other thing I'm interested in very much lately is. Uh, Broadly, I'm thinking of it as like, why not use drugs in both and sort of capturing the full range. So some people can use drugs and not suffer. And it does maybe expand things. And certain drugs are more in line with that than others. And so it's not like a one size fits all. And But I also want to talk about the things you were just touching on, that one reason not to use drugs, even if you're not somebody who has a substance use disorder, might be curiosity to see more about what's possible unmedicated. And I don't just mean substances, but I mean all the ways that we evade or try to go around our experiences, they really have a lot, I think, to offer. And I nearly missed it all. So it's not, I'm still learning how to do that. But I do find that one big difference between my drug using period of exploration and this one is that that was a dead end. And this is kind of a never ending adventure. Mm -hmm. Have you got plans for another book? Because I know you've got, uh, you published a book in 2019. Yeah, I would like to. I'm a full-time teacher, so I have a sabbatical coming up in about a year. It took me a long time to write that book, and uh, I tend to give myself fully to whatever I'm doing. And so I have students, and I have a research lab now, and I, I feel like I it probably take me another 10 years if I try to do it around the edges of those things. But I'm hoping to write another book or two. I I definitely feel like they're in me. Another one might be on sex differences in the causes and consequences of drug use. So yeah, I love and hate the writing process, but I, I feel like there's a lot of 
scientific information that would be beneficial for general consumption, just so that we all can be on the same page about what's true and what's not. Have you got any quickfire tips for on how to approach people that are suffering? Is there anything that you can think off the top of your head is an approach or a method that seems to work well, just checking in on people that you think are suffering? Yeah, I, I do have one, and it is to tell the person your truth about how their use affects you. So it's really easy, and I have to remind myself this all the time to say, this is what you're doing, and you're wrecking your life, and you're you, 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 you. But instead to say, I feel really scared when I see you, or I miss the times we used to spend together, or I hope this for you. I think to focus on, because I know that I certainly heard a lot of suggestions, you could say, and I was able to ignore them all because I would immediately put up defenses. But the thing that really helped motivate me was when someone talked about their experience of me. Yeah, yeah. the impact it's having on them. Mm -hmm. Wow, powerful. If there was something you would say to your 13-year-old self, is that the sort of thing that you would? Oh my gosh, my 13-year-old self. Well, I would, she wouldn't believe me, but I would say that you are okay, but I don't think she would hear it. So it's still hard to hear it at 58, but I'm, I'm getting better and better at that. I think I had a perpetual sense of not being enough and, you know, it's helped drive a lot of the things I do. And it's also, you know, something to work on every day. Yeah. Well, you've certainly accomplished a lot in your life so far, Judy, especially with all the stuff that you're doing, the study and the books and the teaching. We are very privileged to be able to talk to you today. How can people get in touch with you if they want to reach out? Yeah, sure. They could write to me at my university, which is Bucknell University in central Pennsylvania in the U.S. It's j.grizel, G-R-I-S-E-L at bucknell.edu. That's probably the easiest way. They could also, if they can't remember that, the title of, or I have another email address at neveroughnoughdrugs at gmail.com. So look me up and reach out. I'd be glad to correspond with anybody really who has questions or thoughts anytime. Well, thanks very much. It's been super inspiring talking to you and to see what you've, as a result of the experience you went through, what you've been able to do with that curiosity. 35 years ago or whenever that was. So congratulations, and I'm sure we'll hear more about you. Thank you, Sam. It's been great talking with you also. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.